delighted that you've made it your decision to be here tonight. We have a good crowd present this evening, perhaps the best crowd we've had for the meeting. I'm delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible and eager to study with us. I might encourage you to be turning to the third chapter of the Gospel of John, and we'll come there in just a few moments. I want to take just a moment to again express my appreciation for the invitation that the elders have extended to me to come and to be the speaker in this meeting, and I it's greatly appreciated more than you may realize that the fact that you could have invited someone else, but that I was invited and I've been able to come and be with you. I appreciate so much the kind way in which you have listened, the kind comments that you've made about each lesson, and I appreciate so much the hospitality that you've shown to Joan and me for having us in your home or taking us out for a meal, and we want you to know time and expense we know goes into that, and we appreciate that so much, the kind hospitality that you've shown. It's been a pleasure to be with David and Teresa this week and spend some time with them. I appreciate the work that they're doing in the work here. And I know you're delighted that they're a part of this work and I appreciate so much the work that they're doing here in the kingdom. And it's a special joy. I enjoy going and preaching the gospel anywhere that I'm invited to go preach in meetings. But it's a special joy to be where Krista and Van, for those who don't know, she's my daughter, and the grandchildren especially, to be where they are. And it is good to be with them. And I am delighted that they are in this church and that they are a part of you. And um, they, you mean so much to them, and I appreciate all that you do for them. We have a good number from El Bethel where I preach. A good number have showed up this evening. And we appreciate their presence and them coming to support our meeting tonight. The elders ask that I speak on the subjects of first principles throughout the week. And we've been doing that since Sunday morning. And I appreciate their interest in that and the fact that you have shown so much interest in these basics and these first principles. Everything comes back to the first principles. I've mentioned several of you uh, throughout the week, and you've heard me tell this story, but I asked Urban Lee a number of years ago, some of you remember Urban Lee, an older preacher has been dead for a number of years, to give me one piece of advice and what would be the best piece of advice you could give to a young preacher, and he said... Remember, we teach first grade every year, and that's all he said. I like that. We need to teach first grade every year. And this is first grade stuff. This is first principle stuff that we've been talking about all week, and I appreciate so much the elders asking me to do that. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the new birth as we bring this series to a close, and I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. You might put a marker or a finger there. We're going to come back to that chapter time and again. And unfold several things from John chapter 3. But I want you to notice at the beginning, though, in verse 3, that Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Drop down to verse 5. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Drop down to verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus summarized what he had just said at verse 3 and at verse 5 by saying, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus said that one must be born again. Most of so-called Christianity, that is, most of the religions that would claim to come under the banner of Christianity, at least in their mind, claim somehow to be born again. There may be various aspects of that that they go in different directions, but most of so-called Christianity makes a claim of being born again. 
There's much misunderstanding about what that means. Some argue that the born of water and of the Spirit is Holy Spirit baptism. It's some kind of overwhelming of the power of the Spirit that enables you to work miracles. And they think John 3 is talking about that very concept. Being born of water and of the Spirit has to do with Holy Spirit baptism, they think. There are others who think it has reference to the work of purification by the Spirit to change our will. Some kind of direct operation of the Holy Spirit that works upon us to change our will that we could not do otherwise unless the Spirit operated somehow directly upon us. And that's what the new birth is about, we are told by some. There are others who think that it is a natural or physical birth. Just as you were born, physically, this is what this is talking about. Being born of the water and of the Spirit. That's what Nicodemus thought. We'll see that in just a moment. And then there are others who think that the water is the Spirit. That when Jesus talked about being born of water, what he means by water is Spirit. So I suppose he means you're born of the Spirit and of the Spirit that you might enter the kingdom, whatever that's supposed to mean. We'll come to that here in just a few moments. So our question for our study tonight is, what is the new birth? What is it all about? And can we even understand it? Is it something that's convoluted that we can't really comprehend what the new birth is? Or is it something quite simplistic? That is our study this evening as we talk about the new birth. So again, I encourage you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. We're going to begin there at verse 1 in our study now. Let's start with this. I want to talk to you a little about the context of John chapter 3. And we're going to cover the first 12 verses and allude to some more, but only cover the first 12 verses to get the context. And in this context, what we have is a teacher from God demands the new birth. We begin with this. I want you to notice that in verses 1 and 2 now, Nicodemus, he'll be identified as the text unfolds, comes to Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Here was a man named Nicodemus, and the text says he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Pharisees, which tells me then he was a religious man. So this is not some non-religious guy who knows nothing about spirituality. He is a very religious man. He seems to be a man of of the Sanhedrin. We'll give evidence of that from chapter 7 in just a moment. But he is a man who is religious. He's a Pharisee. He's very active in the Jewish religion. Furthermore, the text says at verse 10, we haven't read that far yet, that he is a teacher in Israel. That means he's a rabbi. And so he is a man who should be conversed with, and that is he knows something about the Old Testament. He should know a great deal about the law of Moses. He should know some things that Moses has said. He should be familiar with the prophets because he's a teacher in Israel. More about that in just a moment. But furthermore, here was a man who came to Jesus, verse 1 says, or verse 2 said, he is the one who came to Jesus by night. Now, why did he come to Jesus by night? Well, the simple answer is we don't know. We're not told exactly. But there may be some inference from some other texts that I want us to allude to. There's some reason now that this man came to Jesus by night. But I want you to notice, first of all, we'll come back to the night in a moment, that he's the man coming to Jesus and not Jesus going to him. He seems to be showing some interest in spirituality. He seems to be showing some interest in what Jesus is saying and doing. Now, let's give some evidence from John chapter 7. You remember when Jesus was questioned, they would have taken Jesus, but 
No one dared touch him, according to chapter 7. And so here in chapter 7, this is during the Feast of the Tabernacles, there is great controversy that has arisen over Jesus. And I want you to notice, beginning at verse 50 now, that in verse 45, there, was, uh, there begins this, this scene wherein the officers came and the chief priest and the Pharisees said, Why have you brought him? And the officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. And there was a rebuke to that, saying that has any of the Pharisees, I'm reading it, verse 48, believed on him? But this crowd does not know the law, they do not know the law is a curse. Now, notice here is our man Nicodemus. He speaks up, and the text says Nicodemus, and then in parentheses you see, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, seemingly of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the crowd. He's part of, part of the rulers. I take that to mean. But I want you to notice what he said about Jesus. Look at verse 51. He said, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? In other words, Nicodemus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, fellas. Let's not condemn a fella without some evidence of the condemnation that should be given to him or evidence for the condemnation. And so does our law uh, condemn a man or judge a man before the hearing that we have before we put him on trial and see the evidence of that? What I want you to see is he seems to be defending Jesus, but he's not committed as a disciple yet. There's no full-fledged commitment. He seems to have some affection for what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. Now, let's go to another text. It may give us some insight. We're trying to answer the question, why might he have come to Jesus by night? Why might he have come to Jesus, number one, and why was it by night, number two? Well, John 19 may give us some insight. This is much later in time. So let's go to the 19th chapter. And I raised the question on the screen before you, could this be a possible parallel? And here's the parallel that I'm talking about. There are two men that are mentioned in the context, and I'm wondering if the description of each of these men is parallel and is saying essentially the same thing. Perhaps not, but I wonder if it, if it could be. Look at verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, here's the phrase, but secretly for fear of the Jews... Get the picture. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Why didn't he come out full-fledged and say, I am a follower of Christ? Well, he had fear of the Jews. Now, same context, same context. Look at verse 39. Just two verses later. Actually, one verse later. Look at verse 39. And Nicodemus, how is he described? Who first came to Jesus by night. I have to wonder if that expression, here is, here is Joseph of Arimathea, secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And then there was another man there named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. If they're not parallel expressions, they may not be. But what I'm suggesting to you is it altogether possible that he came to Jesus by night because he was a secret disciple. Now, I noticed in verse 2, the text says he had concluded in our text, back in our text in John 3. Now, let's go back to our original text in John chapter 3. This is one of the things that makes me wonder. He came to the conclusion that you must be a teacher from God. How did he come to that conclusion? Because no man can work the miracles and the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. You are a teacher from God. He had defended Jesus earlier. Or a little bit later he defends Jesus, but he's not committed to him. At the burial of Jesus, he seems to be associated with a secret disciple. So what are we learning from verses 1 and 2? Here is Nicodemus comes running to Jesus. And he talks to him about, you are a man who is a teacher from God. Now let's go to verse 3. 
Now, in that context, with, with him recognizing Jesus is a man of God, a teacher who came from God, Jesus begins teaching about the new birth. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asks, he says, he's got a question about that. How can this be? How can a man be born when he is old? He's he's thinking this is a physical birth. So look at verse 4. He said, how can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I really don't understand this concept of being born again. Do you go back into your mother's womb and you're born? How can you do that? How can a grown man do that? I don't, I don't get the concept. So Jesus says at verse 5, here's what I'm talking about. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what I'm talking about. When I say be born again, I'm talking about being born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. Now at verses 6 and 7, Jesus emphasizes that what this is, is a spiritual birth. This is a spiritual birth, Jesus says. Now look at verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So if I'm talking about a fleshly birth, I'm talking about being born of the flesh. But I just mentioned to you being born of the water and of the Spirit. That tells you that is a spiritual birth, Nicodemus. Now verse 7. Verse 7. That which is, uh, do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. This is not an amazing thing. Because I'm talking about a spiritual birth and I'm telling you that you must be born again. Yes, you Nicodemus must be born again. So get the context. What's going on in the context? Nicodemus came to Jesus, verses 1 and 2. Jesus just taught him that he had to be born again. Now let's begin at verse 8. Verses, um, at verse 8 verse through verse 21, actually we're going to go through verse 12 and allude to 13 to 21. That there is now an explanation of the new birth. Notice what he says at verse 8. Jesus goes further to explain what I'm talking about is not a fleshly birth. This doesn't involve some kind of physical change. So what does he say at verse 8? Well, here's what Jesus said at verse 8. He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. And you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Many commentators have come to that and they get confused as to what verse 8 is talking about. And so I don't want to understand what Jesus is talking about. Let's get what the comparison is first and what it's not. Jesus does not make a comparison between the new birth and the wind. Jesus is not saying the new birth is like the wind. That's not what he said. The comparison is between the wind and the one who is born again. But go back to our text. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, and cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That's the comparison. So what is his point? Nicodemus had objected on the basis that he did not understand. Go back to verse 4. At verse 4, he said, I don't understand. How can, how can this happen to you? Go back into the, the mother's womb the second time. I don't understand how this goes on. He had objected on the basis he didn't understand. Jesus is making the point, you not, ought not to object to something because you don't understand everything. You don't fully understand everything about the wind, Nicodemus. What do you not understand about the wind? You don't see where it comes from and you don't see where it goes. What you see is the effect of it. So what Jesus is doing is refuting the idea that this is a physical birth. It is the unseen part of man that is born. You do not see physical changes in the man, you see the effects. Let's go back to the wind. 
With the wind, you don't see where it's coming from and you don't see where it's going. But you see the effect of the wind. You see trees laying down. You see grass leaning in a certain direction. You may see trash blowing. What you're seeing is the effect of that. You don't actually see the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So likewise, the part of man that is born again, the change that takes place, is not the part of man you see. You don't see physical changes. You don't walk up to somebody and say, I I notice your face looks different and your arm looks different. You must be born again. You don't see physical changes at all. But it's the inner part of man that changes. And that's the point Jesus is making. Now at verse 9, Jesus, or Nicodemus said, how could this be? Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? He's still confused. But it goes a step further. What's confusing him? He seems perplexed because how could he, being a ruler and a Pharisee, after all, have a need to enter the kingdom? The very idea. Me? Me needing to be in the kingdom? How could that be? I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I am a ruler. You see, that was a common concept among the Jews. They felt that being a Jew automatically made them children of God. Let's turn to John 8, if you will, beginning at verse 31 and 32. Jesus said this at verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Sounds like a wonderful proclamation, doesn't it? Well, the Jews objected to that. Why did they object to that? They said, we be Abraham's seed and never been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye should be made free? Do you get what they said? They said the very idea, we are offended that you would say we need to be made free because we're children of Abraham. We're Jews. And that automatically makes us children of God. We don't need anything. Well, in Romans chapter 9, Paul said that not all of Israel are of Israel. What's his point? Just because you're of the fleshly descent of Abraham does not automatically make you a child of God. That's what Nicodemus thought. That's why he's asking, how could these things be? How could you be implying that I need to be in the kingdom, he said. So Jesus answers beginning at verse 10. He said, at verse 10, he said, are you a teacher? Are you reading with me at verse 10? Are you a teacher in Israel and you do not know these things, he said? You see, you being a, being a rabbi, familiar with the law and knowing the details of the law and can quote the law. You ought to be familiar with these things. Like what? You remember Deuteronomy 18? Any rabbi should have known that Moses, being a prophet of God, had foretold of a coming prophet that all men were to listen to, and they were watching for the Messiah to come. This rabbi should have known about that. You're a teacher in Israel, and are you ignorant of that? Are you ignorant of like Deuteronomy 18? And what about Jeremiah 31? The prophets had said there was coming a time when a new covenant would come. There was not like the old covenant. He was a rabbi. He should have known that. So go back to verse 10 with that in mind. He said, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? That, that some Messiah would come along and would declare to you that you need to be in the kingdom of God and you're surprised and yet you're supposed to know the Old Testament law. Look at verse 11. Most assuredly, I say, we speak the things we know and testify what we have seen And you do not receive our witnesses. Jesus said they're credible witnesses. To the fact the Messiah has come is implied. And yet you don't accept that. You don't accept that. 
Jesus was his own one witness for himself. His works, which had just been cited at verse 2. No man can do the things which you do, the signs which you do, unless God be with him. You've already seen the witnesses of that. And you're rejecting what the Messiah is saying. Now notice verse 12. This is where he launches into the point that goes on to verse 21. He said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how do you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? If you will not accept the earthly things, like what you need to do, like you must be born again, how are you going to accept heavenly things, things learned by revelation that are going to be discussed in verses 13 to 21? If you won't accept this, how would you accept anything that's given to you by the revelation, like might be given through the apostles? How would you accept that? So what we just saw in this context is a teacher from God demands that Nicodemus be born again. I now understand the context in which that sets. Now, let's go to a second point. I want to talk about its meaning is simple. In other words, what it means to be born again is quite simple. And so let's see if we can give a simple definition and explanation thereof. Let's go back and consider this principle. First of all, I want us to consider again that it is a spiritual birth. That whatever this new birth involves, being born of water and of the Spirit, it is a spiritual birth and not a physical birth. Two verses I want to take note of that we've already passed over. Look at verse 6 again. Verse 6, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, this is a spiritual birth. Verse 8 had made this point. The comparison, again, is not with the wind and the new birth, but the wind and the one that is born again. And you can't see the wind, but you see the effects. You can't see the part of man that's born again. So those two verses say, this is a spiritual birth. Whatever it is, it is some kind of spiritual birth. But secondly, let's consider this. That being born again is simply obedience to the truth. And I'm going to give you four reasons why I know that to be the case. Watch for the four. Number one. That what you had to do to enter the kingdom, according to Jesus, in John 3 was be born again in order to enter the kingdom. Now, if I can find something else in the Bible where it says this is what you do to enter the kingdom, then that's the same thing as being born again, isn't it? Do you follow that? Let's go over that again. The, The text says in John 3, be born again to enter the kingdom. So whatever the Bible says elsewhere I must do to enter the kingdom, that's what being born again involves. Let's see if we can find that. Now remember, verses 3 and 5 says, In order to enter the kingdom, I must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Now what does the Bible say about entering the kingdom of God? Well, let's look at Matthew 7 and verse 21. In the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What I just learned. I learned that I must do the will of the Father. That's obedience to the gospel to enter the kingdom. When I do the will of the Father, I'm being born again, am I not? By parallel. Let's look at another passage. Except ye be converted. Matthew 18, 3. Except ye be converted, you shall no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be converted to enter the kingdom. So when I am converted, I'm being born again. How did I learn that? I found parallel text. It talks about how to get in the kingdom. These passages say, be born of water in the spirit to enter the kingdom. And so by parallel, they have given me some definition of what it means to be born again. Here's the second of the four. And that is, I understand where new life begins. Just as when you are born, that's where life begins. Your life here on earth begins. So likewise, in the new birth, that's where your spiritual life begins. 
So if I can peruse through the New Testament and find where new life begins, that helps me to understand what the new birth involves. Let's go to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul's point is not to continue in sin. That is, we're not to continue to practice sin. And one of his arguments for that is this, beginning at verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now watch it now. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. Where the newness of life began? When you rise from the waters of baptism. So when I am baptized, now rise from the waters of baptism, now I have been born again because that's where the new life begins. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 17. If any man be in Christ, are you watching the passage? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Where do I become a new creature? Where new life begins? It is in Christ. How do I get into Christ? Romans 6 says you're baptized into Christ. Galatians 3 says we're baptized into Christ. So when I am baptized into Christ, that's where new life begins. I've just been born again. Parallels help me to understand. Here's the third of the four things that help me to understand that, that the new birth involves obedience to the truth. That's all it involves. And that is an understanding of the context of 1 Peter chapter 1. And so if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse, 20, verse 18. I want to back up to verse 18. And if you're so disposed to mark in your Bible, you might get a pencil out and mark some things, at, particularly at verse 23, 22 and 23. Let's notice verse 18 and 19. You remember on Monday night, we talked about redemption by the blood of Christ. He mentions it here. Knowing that you redeemed, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, received from your aimless conduct by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. All right, Peter, what did you say? He said we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, verses 18 and 19. Secondly, look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. He said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. All right, I learned two things there. I learned that their souls became purified. When the souls are purified, that's the same as being redeemed by the blood. How'd that happen? By their obeying the truth. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now verse 23. Verse 23. Read with me. Having been born again. You see what we just saw? Let's go to the text. Seeing you have purified your souls, how? You purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now, when I did that, verse 23 says, having been born again. You might draw a line between obeying the truth and being born again because there is your contextual inspired definition. Do you get that? A contextual inspired definition. The text just told me what it means to be born again. When I obey the truth, I am born again. When I'm born again, it's simply a matter of obeying the truth. That's all it involves. I said there are four. Here's the fourth. Let's look at some parallel passages. And that is, there are some things that are found in our text. There are three things I want you to pay attention to in John 3. And we'll look at three other texts that are parallel. In John 3, 5, Jesus said, A man must be born of water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. Now, we all understand that that's what the text requires. Being born of water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. What does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to be in the kingdom? Well, if I can find some parallel texts that have those same elements, 
but worded differently, it enhances my understanding of John 3, 5. So let's try 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. For by one spirit are you all baptized into one body. Is that parallel? Well, let's see if it is. Being in the kingdom and being in the body are one and the same. We'll give evidence of that in just a moment. From Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. We are baptized in water. We'll give evidence that water was always in the New Testament connected with, uh, with baptism. Like Acts 8, like Acts 10. We'll cite those in just a moment. Obviously, the one spirit and the spirit are the same. Now I'm beginning to understand a little more what it means to be born of water and of the spirit. Because I know what it means to be by one spirit baptized into one body. But let's take another passage that may enhance our understanding. This time, let's go to Titus 3 and in verse 5. That we are saved. Remember last night we talked about how one is saved by the mercy of God, by the kindness of God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now here we are at verse, verse 5. According to his mercy he saved us. He calls it the grace at verse 7, but mercy he saves us. Verse 5. He saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, I understand that being saved and being in the body and being in the kingdom are all one and the same thing, aren't they? I also understand that washing, I'm now beginning to understand how water and baptism are connected. Here's the washing of regeneration is connected with the idea of baptism. And I see the Holy Spirit, the renewing of the Holy Spirit and spirit in one body would seem to be parallel. Let's take one more passage and look at that. And let's go now to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. Speaking of the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water. Sanctify and cleanse, here's our word, with the washing of water by the word. Now, do I not have the same elements again? Well, to be cleansed and to be saved and be in the body and be in the kingdom, they seem to all be talking about the same thing. Now, this passage connects how washing and water are together, the washing of water. There was something about us being cleansed with the washing of water which was connected with baptism. But now we've shifted gears just a little bit. Here he uses the term word. But remember how the word came. It came by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? The word is the sword of the Spirit. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now let's see what we've got when I look at the parallels. When I look at all these parallels, that all of these, where we're talking about water, or we're talking about baptized, or washing of regeneration, or the, the washing of water, seems to be referring to the idea of being baptized. Well, when we come to the Spirit, since the Spirit is the, the means by which the Word was revealed, it has to do with the instructions of the Spirit that is given through the Word. That's what it means by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. That is, by the instructions of the Spirit as revealed in the Word, I am baptized into one body. And the idea of being in the kingdom, being in the body, being saved, being cleansed has to do with being saved. So another way of wording, being born of the water and of the Spirit into the kingdom, is being baptized by the instructions of the Word, then we're saved. Have you been baptized by the instructions of the Word of God? You said, yes, I remember reading those passages, and they were preached to me, and I was baptized because the Word told me to be baptized, and I was saved. Then you've been born of the water and of the Spirit. It's the same thing. And we showed that from four different angles. But let's go to another point. I want to go back to the key elements now. By key elements, there are two things that are mentioned. Being born of water and of the Spirit. Let's define those and how we know. We've defined already that water refers to baptism, but let's go a little bit deeper with that. Some think that the term water, some of our charismatic friends, 
have argued that the term water actually refers to the Spirit. And that when Jesus says being born of the water, he's actually meaning being born of the Spirit is what he's talking about. Well, that's absurd. You say, why is it absurd? Well, he's already said, he says later rather, being born of the water and the Spirit. So that would mean being born of the Spirit and of the Spirit. What does the first Spirit refer to? When you define that, then what does the second Spirit refer to? A different Spirit? Or is it the same Spirit? If so, why was he redundant then? That doesn't make any sense. And then here's a question I've always asked and never got a, a decent answer on. And that is, what if Jesus, let's just take for argument's sake, that Jesus actually means spirit by the word water. But what if he had wanted to mean water? What word would he have used? Spirit? Well, no, that wouldn't work. We wouldn't have got the idea that he's water. What, what if Jesus had wanted to mean water? What word could he have used? And the answer is water. Well, that's the word he used. He used water. So what does Jesus mean by water? He means water. Being born of the water and the spirit. Now, the connection that water has to the kingdom is baptism. Here's the evidence. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8? As the eunuch was traveling along in a chariot and he heard the preaching of the gospel, he said, see, here is. Remember? See, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? Water was connected with baptism in Acts 8. Well, when the Gentiles were converted in Acts chapter 10, when Peter came to the conclusion that the Gentiles can be saved, he said, can any man forbid water? That these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit as well as we. Water was connected with the kingdom of God in baptism. So when Jesus talks about being born of the water, that refers to baptism. And we've shown that the parallel text as well. But let's go a step further. The idea of this being born of the Spirit means led by the directions of the Spirit as, they, as He has revealed His directions in the Word. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's talk about the work of the Spirit. This is where the foundations and the first principles are so helpful. We need to understand these principles of how the Spirit operates or we're going to be led astray somewhere. We need to know how the Spirit operates. What did the Spirit do? Well, in Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 3, How that by revelation He made known to me the mysteries I wrote afore in few words. Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Paul said, that which was in the mind of God has been revealed and it's been written down and you can understand it. Paul, how did all that happen? How did all that take place, Paul? All right, I'll tell you. Look at verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. What the Holy Spirit did is the Spirit worked in revealing the Word. That's why in Ephesians 6.17, the text calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. What's that mean? It's the instrument that the Spirit uses. The sword of the soldier is the instrument the soldier uses to accomplish his purpose. If he's going to kill someone with his sword, we might say the sword killed the man. But I thought the soldier did it. Well, they're both right. The soldier did it with his instrument of the sword. And so there will be a text that will sometimes tell me that the Spirit does something. But you say, well, I also found a passage over here that says the Word of God does that. They're both right. Because it's the Spirit operating through the Word to do that. That's how the Spirit operates. Now, with that in mind, then that's how I'm led by the Spirit. The Bible talks about being born of the Spirit, John 3, 5 in our text. But the Bible also talks about being begotten through the Gospel. Which was it? Is that a contradiction? 
Someone said, oh, I don't believe in being born of the Spirit. I was begotten by the gospel. And others said, oh, no, I wasn't begotten by the gospel. I was born of the Spirit. Those are not contradictory. That's how the Spirit operates is through the Word. So being born of the water and of the Spirit, we understand the key elements. Now let's spend a little time, fourthly, talking about the change one experiences. Now remember we pointed out from John 3 and verse 8, there's not an outward change that you see. In other words, you don't look at someone and say, I, I can tell, I can tell by looking. I can tell yesterday you look different, but now you're born again, I can tell it in your face. There's not an outward change you see. But what change does take place? Well, here's the change. When you are born again, you enter into the kingdom. Before that point, you are not in the kingdom of God. You're saved. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 18. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. I want to show you the connection of being in the kingdom and being saved are one in the same thing. And now that they are born again, they've obeyed the gospel, been baptized by the teaching of the Spirit, or born of the water and the Spirit, however you want to word that, they're now in the kingdom. Well, let's look at Colossians 1 and in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. When we came out of darkness, we came into the kingdom, the text says. Now we're in the kingdom. Now look at verse 14. What happened in coming into the kingdom? In whom we have redemption through His blood. We're saved when we enter the kingdom. And when we enter the kingdom, we're saved. We pointed that out already this week. It's the idea of being saved, but that's entering into the kingdom of God. Furthermore, that means the same as being in the church. Now, let's go to Matthew 16 in verse 18. Most of our religious friends and neighbors believe the church and the kingdom are distinct and separate. And they believe that the kingdom somehow was, was the, in the mind of God from the beginning. And because Jesus was opposed by the Jews, God delayed the del uh, deliverance of the kingdom and established the church as a substitute instead. The kingdom will come at the second coming is the idea. It's the way we, they say we're in the church age, but the kingdom is yet to come down in the future after Jesus returns. So the church and the kingdom are not one and the same, they argue. Well, let's go to Matthew 16 and see if they're the same thing. Look at Matthew 16 and in verse 18. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What if I told you I'm going to build my house, but I want to give you a key to my dwelling? What does that tell you? You say, well, he's giving me a key to something that said he's going to build a house, but he's giving me a key to something else. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, no, I'm not. If I'm building a house, but I want to give you a key, a terms of entrance into my dwelling, that tells you my dwelling and my house are the same, isn't it? If I say I'm going to build a shop and I want to give you a key to my workplace... My workplace and the shop are one and the same, are they not? Jesus said, I'm going to build something, and then I'm going to give you the terms of entrance to something else. No, I'm building a church, and I'm going to give you the terms of entrance into that, which he turns and calls it the kingdom. And what I'm trying to establish for you is the change that takes place when you're born of water and the Spirit. You enter the kingdom. That's the same as saying you're saved, and that's the same as saying you're in the church. But let's go a step further. Another change that takes place is you become God's child. It's the same change. But now for the first time that you're born again, now for the first time you call on God as your father. 
there is a sense in which God is the God over all creation. And in that broader sense, I suppose we could say God is the Father of all. But there is a special sense in Romans 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, and a host of other passages where those who are the children of God can call upon God as their Father. Now, for the first time, you can call upon God as your Father. Look at 1 John 3 and in verse 2. John exclaims what a privilege and what an honor it is to be a child of God. 1 John 3 is about sonship, being children of God. And he says it, verse 2, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Verse 1. I don't think that's just a matter of, oh, this is, this is something neat to think about. But, oh, what a privilege that is. God would allow us to be His children. That makes us heirs. If we're children, Romans 8, 17 says, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When you become a child of God, you're an heir of God. Because you've been born again. It involves a change in life. Because we're born anew. We're born, the text says, again. That involves beginning life anew. That means we begin a new life and we start all over. There are other figures that give the same kind of idea of a change in life. That is adoption. We've been adopted into a new family, Romans 8 and verse 15. Another illustration of that is marriage. We've entered into a marriage with Christ. Another idea is that of being grafted in. It's like being cut off of one tree and you're grafted into a new and a better tree. Romans chapter 11. And so the change that's taking place when we're born again is the idea of entering into the kingdom. Now we're children of God and now there's been a great change of life. But finally, let's raise the question, how can one be born again? You may be sitting here tonight and you're thinking, you know what, I don't think I've been born again because I'm understanding that being born again is the same as obeying the gospel of Christ. And if I'm understanding you, preacher, I'm understanding that you're talking about being baptized in harmony with the teaching of the word and entering the church of our Lord or being saved or entering the kingdom. That's the same as being born again. I haven't done that. So tell me, if you will, what it means to be born again or how one is born again. Well, let's list some simple things that are found in the New Testament. Let's turn to Acts 18 and verse 8. The Corinthians, Paul said, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. They didn't believe until, first of all, they heard. Do you remember in our study last night? Do you remember the first thing the preacher said after he gave an explanation of the events? He said, ye men of Israel, hear these words. You need to hear the message. What do we need to hear? The teachings of the Spirit. Remember how the Spirit operates? The Spirit operates through the Word. And since the Spirit operates through the Word, I need to listen to the teachings of the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Word of God. And you say, I've listened to that, and I've been listening to that all week, and I've been listening to it at other times. And I understand the teaching of the Spirit. I know what the Spirit says about the Messiah. And I understand what it says about the Son of God. And I understand about the inspiration of the Scriptures and that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, the Bible also tells us that one must believe that very teaching of the Spirit. Remember John 3.16? By the way, that's in the context of being born again. After all this discussion with, with Nicodemus, Jesus said that in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He comes back to Nicodemus and talks about believing on the Son of God. Like it had been prophesied that He had just mentioned earlier in the context at verse 10. He just talked about that. 
believe the teaching of the Spirit. And you say, I do. I believe that. I've heard the teaching of the Spirit and I believe the teaching of the Spirit. Well, it's something else the Spirit has revealed. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that is prompted by godly sorrow. When I begin to look at my life and I recognize, you know what, I've not been living in harmony with the will of God and I haven't been obedient to the will of God and I change my mind because I recognize I've sinned against God and I'm determined I'm going to change my life for the better. That's a change of mind. That's repentance. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what the Spirit said by revelation. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. There is an acknowledgement of one's faith. And illustrating how easy salvation is. It's right here at your fingertips. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For heart with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. He says it's as easy as using your mind to believe and your mouth to simply say, yes, I do believe. That's not too hard. His whole point in Romans chapter 10 is this is easy. It's near. It's within reach was the language that he used. The word is nigh, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, verse 8. And then Jesus said in John 3 and verse 5, must be born of water and of the Spirit. We've already demonstrated that refers to being baptized. So what must I do to be born again? You say, I want to be born again to enter the kingdom. Nicodemus was told you must be born again. That means you must be born again. Have you listened to the teachings of the Spirit? Do you believe the teaching of the revelation of the Spirit? Having heard that and believed that, have you changed your mind? Are you willing to acknowledge and confess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then be buried in the waters of baptism? And when you are, then you're born of water and of the Spirit and you enter into the kingdom. Or another way of wording that is you're baptized in harmony with the teaching of the Spirit or the revelation of the will of God and you are saved. Would you do that even this very evening? What have we seen about the new birth? We see a teacher from God demands the new birth. We see the meaning is quite simple. It's not difficult. We saw the key elements and what they mean. And we see the change that one experiences. And then we see how one could be born again. Would you be born again even this very evening? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, repent of your sins, acknowledge the faith that you have, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?